Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. My name's Christian Byrne, and today I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Lindsay Boone. She's an assistant professor of equine surgery and sports medicine at Auburn University. Um, today she's going to be discussing her review article um, from EVE uh, entitled Local Anesthetics for Regional and Intraarticular Analgesia in the Horse. Um, that was published with her colleague John Schumacher at Auburn. Really pleased to have um, Lindsay join us today. Um, she's got uh, significant experience in this field um, and certainly a topic that's used very commonly in day-to-day practice and maybe something that uh, we underestimate a little bit, some of the, the intricacies of the use of local anaesthetics. So thank you very much for joining us today, Lindsay. Thank you for having me. So um, we sort of worked through the article. There's some interesting topics to discuss, but um, it's useful to give a sort of general overview. Um, obviously, local anaesthetics are relatively long-established drugs, and we use them basically every day and throughout most of our careers, I guess. Um, why did you decide that now is a good time to think about putting together a review article about local anaesthetics? Yeah, I would say that it mostly came um, from the influence of my co-author and mentor, Dr. John Schumacher. Um, you know, I have I have interest in sports medicine, lameness and diagnosis, um, and how we can make that diagnosis more accurate um, and more timely for the equine practitioner, especially in ambulatory practice. Um, and so he has sort of had a long history of evaluating local anesthetic usage. And um, we both sort of decided that maybe it was timely and important for us to discuss some of the factors of local anesthetics that are not commonly thought about. Um, In particular, you know, how we can, you know, their effects, both good and bad, and also how we can affect or manipulate those effects um, by just changing our use of them. That's great. I think it gives useful context for um, the sort of situation we're um, talking about. Um, a lot of us will be familiar with uh, maybe a, a couple of local anesthetics that we routinely use, and maybe that varies a little bit um, in different countries. Um, just to get a sort of a, a sort of spectrum of ideas, how many different local anesthetics um, are generally available, and sort of how many different agents are there that are sort of categorised as local anesthetics? Yeah, so um, if you read the medical literature and go way back, which, um, you know, Dr. Schumacher has an extreme interest in some of the history of the local anesthetics, there's almost, you know, there's greater than 50 local anesthetics that are described um, for use at some point within medical history. Um, so there's a, a large number of local, local anesthetics out there. Primarily local anesthetics are composed of like a hydrophilic and a hydrophobic portion that are linked together with either an ester or an amide. So therefore, local anesthetics are divided into ester or amide type local anesthetics. Um, The ester types are sort of the older, more classically used, um, such as procaine, tetracaine, and chloroprocaine. Um, The amide type local anesthetics are what practitioners are going to be more familiar with and are more commonly used in our current, um, in our current 
day-to-day operations. And those are going to be more um, like lidocaine, mepivacaine, bupivacaine, and ropivacaine. That's great and gives us a um, useful way of thinking about how we can group the different local anesthetics. Um, obviously, a lot of us, whilst we were undergraduates, will have had some teaching about the pharmacology of um, local anesthetics. Would you be able to remind us uh, exactly how the local anesthetics works in terms of how they block nerve transmission? Yeah, so um, I guess the simplistic way of thinking about it is local anesthetics essentially block um, neural sodium channels and prevent propagation of the action potential along the axon. Um, And this is primarily present at the nodes of Ranvier, which are uh, sort of at each axonal point for transmission. That's great. And do different nerves have different susceptibilities to local anesthetics? Yeah, for sure. There's different types of neural fibers that transmit various sensations. Um, and so pain transmission is primarily composed um, or is primarily propagated by C and alpha delta fibers. Um, these are the most sensitive uh, to our local anesthetics and are desensitized first compared to fibers that transmit temperature, pressure, motor signals. Great. I think that um, gives us some useful background um, to take forward sort of a general overview of um, of how local anesthetics work. Um, th- the rest of the article, I guess, gives a more focus to um, some of the differences potentially between different agents um, and starts off looking at the sort of intrinsic pro- um, potencies of um, different agents. Um, which aspect or um, property of the local anesthetic um primarily dictates the the potency and how does that dictate or relate to the the agents that we're most commonly using in equine practice? Yeah, so potency of local anesthetics seems to be um, sort of correlated with how lipophilic the molecule is. Um, And so the greater lipophilicity, the more, um, the greater ability the local anesthetic has to diffuse and penetrate the lipid neuronal membrane and then have its effect. The more lipophilic compounds um, used in equine practice are going to be bupivacaine, um, plus or minus ropivacaine, depending on the commercial availability for it in your country. Um, Those drugs that we more commonly use have more intermediate lipophilicity, and those would be lidocaine um, and mepivacaine, as well as chloroprocaine. Perfect. And how does the um, potency, is there any research that we know about in terms of how that might influence um, uh, things in clinical practice in terms of that potency? Yeah, there's there's a few studies that consider potency associated with sort of efficacy of block, although we know that the efficacy of a peripheral nerve block is um there are other factors that affects it, affect it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some studies that have looked at um, sort of lidocaine versus mepivacaine for solar pain um, and showed that the more lipophilic you know, products may be more effective. Um, so it definitely plays a part, I think, in the local anesthet- anesthetic efficacy and should be considered by the practitioner. But I think there's other things um, that also affect its efficacy. 
Okay, great. And we'll obviously get into those a little bit more. Um, one thing that's useful to touch on um, at this point, um, you discuss a little bit about um, open bottles of local anaesthetic and storage. And then I think there's maybe some variation in the literature about um, how important that is in terms of the, the potency of the um, drug. Could you give us a little summary of, um, uh, of that information? Yeah, I think that... Um... Historically, we thought that once the bottle was opened, the potency of local anesthetics diminished rapidly. Um, a study by Adler and colleagues in 2016 showed that local anesthetics can actually sort of survive in some varying temperatures for approximately 16 months. So, you know, a year is probably a good time frame for you to think about with an open bottle. Most equine practitioners are going to go through our local anesthetics much faster than that, but they do have you know, they remain potent for that long with an open bottle. What does affect sort of potency, it's, it's more, um, is refrigeration. So refrigeration of a local anesthetic um, affects one of the um, compounds within the local anesthetic that is a preservative. And that will reduce, um, that preservative is meant to prevent bacterial growth. Um, within the local anesthetic. And so that does make the bottle of local, local anesthetic more easily contaminated. So it's not recommended that you refrigerate your local anesthetics and it's not going to increase the potency. Great. So I think a good practical tip there already just to take home is that they, they probably last quite a long time, um, probably quicker than we use them anyway, uh, or we use them more quickly than that anyway, and actually um, no need to keep them in the fridge. So those are all, I think, uh, helpful things at this point. In terms of other things that influence the how rapidly um, local anaesthetics work when we when using them clinically, um, what other factors are are important in dictating that? Obviously, the potency is one, but there's there's maybe other things that we need to think about at that point. Yeah, so things that are going to affect um, your block when using a local anaesthetic is going to be somewhat the innate properties or molecular composition of the local anaesthetic, as we've sort of alluded to previously, the proximity in which the local anesthetic is deposited to the nerve. So we definitely know that, um, you know, in order to be the quickest onset, it needs to be within that neuronal sheath. The size of the nerve is certainly going to affect it. The dose of local anesthetic given, and that's influenced by both the concentration of the anesthetic and the volume used. Um, along with the innate properties is going to be the PKA of the product that you use. Um, and then lastly, the characteristics of the tissue in which the local anesthetic is deposited will influence the pH and the PKA and ultimately the diffusion of that local anesthetic into the neural membrane. And I think another thing we should touch on maybe before we explore those a little bit more um, in terms of um, when we think about how long we should wait before we potentially assess a horse if we're using um, uh, for diagnostic purposes, um, is there any evidence? Obviously, we've talked about different um, nerves and things in terms of the neuronal types we or nerve types we're dealing with. Um, how long should we be waiting between uh, maybe say more proximal uh, nerve blocks compared to more distal? limb nerve blocks is there, is there any evidence to maybe allow us to be more um scientific about when when we time that assessment 
Um, yes and no. I would say that, um, again, there's many factors that affect it. I think in general, most of the research is going to point to distal peripheral nerves having a much shorter onset. So waiting approximately five to 10 minutes is going to be appropriate prior to assessing that horse. The more proximal, larger nerves, such as the median, ulnar, peroneal, and tibial, um, are going to take longer for diffusion of the local anesthetic into the center of the nerve and for it to have its effect. So typically waiting approximately 20 minutes um, is recommended. Perfect. Um, and whilst we're on that subject, I guess um, you've got some nice diagrams um, that demonstrate some of the anatomy um, related to the nerves. How important is the accuracy of the injection um, for us to get you know, the best block possible? Yeah, I think that accuracy is incredibly important um, for us to get the block um, to be the most effective as possible. So Dr. Schumacher actually and colleagues have done some research looking at um, injection within or out of the neuronal sheath and have shown that even a palmar digital nerve block without, you know, outside of that sheath will take up to sometimes 45 minutes before it takes effect. So, you know, I think trying to be as close to that nerve is absolutely um, imperative for accuracy of that particular nerve block. And then if you're moving forward with your lameness exam, um, sort of having an accurate diagnosis and localization. Great. And I guess important to touch on that point that necessarily just adding more volume of local anesthetic um, won't necessarily compensate for that, I guess. Unfortunately, it won't. Um, I think that we all as equine practitioners, that's sort of our easy go-to solution is to just bump up our volume. Um, But even if it is, you know, it it has to be close. It really has to be within that nerve sheath or close to it to accurately have any effect. The volume just basically dilutes or diffuses out the tissue. So um, it does not have that great of an effect. And volume, um, you also discussed a little bit later in relation to um, uh, joint blocks and things as well. Um, Can you expand a little bit on on why the volume might be important in relation to those and potentially related to diffusion as well? Yeah, so the volume within an articular synovial structure um, is important from the standpoint of you are trying to you think with your block, you're being accurate to only um, synovial tissues, but the higher volume, the higher chances of um, diffusion and blockade of perisynovial structures. So a great example is um, blocking the digital flexor tendon sheath and actually inadvertently blocking the palmar digital nerves. So you want to try and be as accurate and as low a volume as you possibly can with both peripheral and intra-articular neural block or intra-articular blockade. And as you touched on earlier, the obviously the total dose is related to concentration and the volume of drug that we're using. Obviously, we're a little bit limited in terms of the concentration that's commercially available. Is is the you know the ones we've got? Um, but do you think if there was if a drug was marketed with a, a higher concentration, would that be something that would be useful in practice or do you think that's not really that important and what we've got is is you know wouldn't be that wouldn't be that more beneficial 
Certainly the higher the concentration, the concentration affects how many molecules of local anesthetic are available to cross the nerve membrane and have an effect. So the higher the concentration, um, certainly the more potent or the greater onset of local anesthetic. Um, most of our local anesthetics are 2% or less um, and seem to still be clinically effective. The chloropropane you can get at a higher concentration, which is 3%, um, but certainly it seems that 2% mepivacaine is, is effective for equine practitioners. Great. And one other point to touch on at this stage, um, you mentioned about sort of the PKA and the importance of um, considerations of pH um, in relation to local anesthetics. Could you give us a little bit more detail about that and, and particularly the scenarios that we might encounter clinically that might alter that? Yeah, so um, PKA is really the pH at which um, 50% of the drug is ionized or is in its water-soluble form. Um, and 50% is non-ionized or lipid-soluble. And as we kind of talked about earlier, touched upon earlier, local anesthetic potency is determined by how well that local anesthetic um, can cross that lipid membrane. So most of our local anesthetics are acidic and they have a um, high pKa, and, and that means that most of the molecules are actually in an ionized form. So you have less molecules available to cross the neural membrane, and it relies on the tissue environment to reduce the pH and convert those into lipophilic type molecules to cross the neural membrane, which takes, which takes time. Mm -hmm. um, so reducing the pH uh, of that local anesthetic means that more molecules are lipophilic and can more easily cross that lipid membrane of the neural, um, of the neuron. Now, for me, the reason that I initially kind of became interested in this was trying to, because um, I'm impatient and I'm a surgeon, and that is um, trying to increase how quickly some of the higher regional nerve blocks um, take effect. But I will be honest, where I use it more clinically in practice is times that I need to do a regional limb perfusion on a lower limb, but need to block like the median and ulnar nerve. Because mm -hmm. I know that oftentimes my residents or myself will sort of jump the gun, will block that, that proximal limb, assuming that the horse now no longer has sensation and jump towards regional limb perfusion. And we know from the literature, it takes much longer to take effect. So times in which I'm doing surgery on the distal limb or doing a regional limb perfusion on the distal limb, I found using or, or alkalinizing my local anesthetic using something like sodium bicarbonate makes it much more user-friendly and effective for me um, to perform some of those procedures. Okay, that's, that's I think, uh, uh, certainly a very helpful tip. Um, and uh, do you have any other sort of useful advice in terms of... Um, uh, use of things like epinephrine obviously um, you discuss a little bit later in the article maybe that's more beneficial in in terms of increasing the duration of um, the effects how how might that play in as a, an additive we can use clinically yeah so epinephrine is um, obviously a vasoconstricting agent and we know that local anesthetic duration is also affected by how much um sort of vasodilation is present within the tissues. And so how quickly is that local anesthetic taken away? Um, 
And so if you need a block to be sort of more potent in duration, then adding epinephrine can certainly help and seems to have very few detrimental effects provided that you have it at a low concentration. So at the one part to 200,000 parts or lower. That's great. And there's been some um, preparations, obviously, that, that contain epinephrine and there's obviously the option to add epinephrine yourself. Um, is there any factors that are important about um, the benefits and cons of, of doing that? Yeah, so um, the commercially available local anesthetics that already have um, carbo- or already have epinephrine within them um, have a preservative or um, an agent within them that alters the pH of that local anesthetic and therefore, again, reduces the time of onset. So it's not as effective as sort of your do-it-yourself preparations of epinephrine um, that can be clinically useful. And we've we've kind of led on to um, discussions about the duration of um, action of the local anesthetics. Obviously, clinically, that can be um, something that can be in our favor or work against us for um, lameness investigations. Obviously, if we're waiting for a regional block to work or wear off so we can be more specific or whether that's that we're maybe trying to block other limbs in a horse um, with multi-limb lameness Um, what obviously other than the sort of additives that we're potentially using um, what properties of the local anesthetic um, dictate the the duration of action really yeah so we talked about um, sort of the vascular effects within the tissue environment so how vasodilated is the tissue or the properties of the local anesthetic, um, but certainly other properties of the local anesthetics, particularly how much is bound to protein, um, can affect it. So certainly those two things can affect the duration of local anesthetic. And can you remind us um, or give us some, maybe some um, um, literature about the um, relative durations of the local anesthetics we're using um, in clinical practice? Yeah, so most of the literature points to um, a maximum duration of effect for lidocaine, anywhere from 30 minutes to three hours. Um, for mempivacaine, reports are anywhere from 90 minutes up to three hours. And for bupivacaine, it's three to eight hours. Um, that's a large range for all of those local anesthetics, but likely is influenced by other factors that we've sort of previously discussed. And just whilst we're sort of talking about that, in your sort of clinical practice or experience, do you tend to use different agents? So as we were saying, maybe if you had um, different scenarios, whether that's in a lameness investigation or for um, um, uh, maybe surgical um, regional anesthesia, obviously you, you mentioned maybe with relation to regional limb perfusions, but do you have a sort of um, go-tos for maybe for multi-limb lameness? Do you use a different um, agent if you're trying to give a longer duration of action or do you um, do you just tend to stick to the same agent that you were using anyway? Um, to be honest, I, I tend to stick to um, mepivacaine still, so 2% mepivacaine. Um, I definitely use some of the additives that are discussed in this article um, for various either diagnostic or therapeutic reasons, but primarily with multi-limb 
um, diagnosis, I'm sticking with the 2% lidocaine or 2% mepivacaine, I'm, I'm sorry, um, and just keeping in mind what my duration of effect is um, and sort of the response to analgesia from the horse. That's great. And I guess leads us on a little bit to, to think about some of the detrimental effects because potentially they vary a little bit um, between agents. So um, do, do local anesthetics induce a sort of an inflammatory reaction at all when they've been administered? They do. So um, local anesthetics have been shown to be inflammatory to the tissues in which they are injected. Certainly, it appears that some local anesthetics are more inflammatory than others. So lidocaine is thought to be more inflammatory than mepivacaine, which is primarily why I think most equine practitioners are going to lean towards mepivacaine along with sort of commercial availability. That's great. And um, does the nerve blocking ever, or is there any evidence that that has any impact on nerve function? Obviously, we've talked about how the proximity to the nerve is really important and presumably that that might risk um, some damage to the nerve in some cases, or is that is that not the case? It, it doesn't seem seem so, meaning that um, inadvertent sort of nerve puncture, intraneural injection, um, both in the human literature and sort of reviewed within the equine literature, it doesn't appear that there are any long-lasting neural effects um, from that type of type of injection. And that leads us on a little bit, I guess, um, part of the article you discuss um, the use of local anesthetics for intra-articular um, use. Um, is there any difference there in terms of um, the potential local tissue damage that, that those might um, result in? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we have to be cognizant of effects of various medications within the synovial compartment. Um, and much like corticosteroids, local anesthetics also have um, deleterious effects that are primarily related to the type and dosage we feel. Um, we know that in vitro studies have shown um, that lower doses of lidocaine and even low doses of lidocaine and mepivacaine um, can be chondrotoxic. Um, certain in vivo studies have tried to look at just a single intraarticular um, use of local anesthetics and sort of the long-term effects. Um, and it still points to the possibility for some sort of chondronecrosis, chondrotoxicity, um, but that is likely delayed and, and is not seen or evaluated till, till much longer, much later um, in a patient's lifetime. So we really don't completely know the long-term effects of a single intraarticular dose of local anesthetics, but certainly I think a practitioner should practice judicious use of local anesthetics within the synovial compartment. And something you discuss a little bit is obviously in, in a lot of cases we'll maybe be um, uh, performing a lameness examination with diagnostic anesthesia um, and then subsequently potentially medicating the same structure that we might have performed the, the block directly into or, or even in some cases combining those two into a single injection um, do you, is there any evidence that that has um, any further negative effects? And I guess what are your um, thoughts or your approach to those situations maybe where we um, think about the timing of when we might use a, a corticosteroid? Yeah, so the literature really points that points to the fact that co-administration of a local anesthetic and a um, corticosteroid 
can sort of potentiate those chondrotoxic effects that are discussed. Um, and so to be honest, I never co-administer these products. I typically delay corticosteroid treatment um, for a minimum of three days, typically a week post local anesthetic use within a synovial compartment. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, and um, obviously we've talked a little bit about steroids or corticosteroids um, and something you discuss a little bit later is um, uh the use of um, dexamethasone and, and maybe alpha-2 agonists um, uh, maybe as alternatives to local anesthetics. Um, do we have any more information about things maybe if we're looking for an, an, an agent that's um, maybe got less chondrotoxicity, um, uh, you know, what other agents might be available um, as potential avenues to, to do that? Yeah, so there have been some studies looking at other agents that could potentially um, sort of protect those chondrocytes from deleterious effects of local anesthetics. Um, and that would include uh, things like magnesium sulfate or, um, or things like morphine. There's literal literature about those agents, but yet it seems that this is something that's becoming more and more um, sort of people are coming, becoming more aware of and more interested in trying to, to do that, including mm-hmm. other sort of biologic agents even, such as platelet-rich plasma, um, to, to kind of decrease that toxic effect. Yeah, and I'm sure that, that's probably going to be something we'll see more of in the future. Um, I guess a lot of those we're, we're thinking about um, maybe um, using them um, for sort of um, post-operative pain relief and things in uh, patients where we've um, performed a surgical procedure. Um, is there any evidence about mixing local anesthetic agents um, so maybe we get a faster onset as we were sort of alluding to earlier so we can maybe get started with the procedure um, but then maybe using a, an agent with a slightly longer duration of action like bupivacaine and, and mixing those two um, do we get the, the best of both worlds in in that situation or is that not the case it's not the case um, the potency and the duration sort of become really unpredictable when you're sort of mixing agents with different um, pHs um, and other properties. And therefore, it becomes a really an ineffective strategy to sort of try and get the best of both worlds. Uh, and another area I think is worth touching on um, is the sort of topical mixed um, local anesthetic creams like Emla. Um, uh, certainly, they're relatively commonly used in, in human patients Um but maybe not something we use a huge amount in equine practice. Um, do you have any experience of using those and maybe any thoughts about um, if, if they're not as effective, why that might be? Yeah, I, I, I don't have much experience using those topical local anesthetic solutions um, or creams. I think certainly um, there are different characteristics of you know, different barriers to penetration when you compare human to equine. Um, but certainly I think as they, um, are evaluated more, they may be more utilized in equine practice. That's great. And I guess, um, just to sort of round things off, it'd be interesting to hear if there's any other, um, particular areas where you think there's going to be, or needs to be more, um, work with the sort of, um, use of local anesthetic 
medications in in um, equine practice and what you think um, what might be influencing our, our use of them in the future? Yeah, I think um, certainly more awareness and more research into some of those additives are going to be, um, I think, more prominent, particularly when we're talking about trying to improve both peri and postoperative analgesia of our patients. Um, and then particularly trying to protect the synovial compartment whilst sort of pro- providing some diagnostic analgesia methods for doing that, I think are also going to be um, hopefully evaluated more. That's great. I think a really good way to um, to finish things off. Um, and I think, yeah, it's given us a really useful insight and some, some practical tips and maybe some questions answered that I think certainly um, have uh, have been circulating um, certainly in people's minds I'm sure about um, how best to use local anesthetics seeing as we do use them so much um, so thank you very much for your time on that today Lindsay very much appreciated thank you very much thank you for listening to this equine veterinary education podcast more on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at Wiley Online Library dot com forward slash journal forward slash e